0: Hello, and welcome to Pause Pop, Positively Pop Culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm Carrie Gessner. And I'm K.W. Taylor. Today, we're doing a special episode on two iconic TV series from the 90s, and we're bringing in two special guests to discuss them.
1: Yes. So first, we have pop culture scholar Robin coming back to the show to talk about Melrose Place. Welcome back, Robin. Let's get to it. So, Robin, you have how many? Yes. How long have you been watching Melrose? In the like, did you finish a rewatch?
2: I'm not finished a rewatch. It is seven seasons, and back in the day, they, there's 31 episodes per season. Oh man, if you can believe it. So it's a lot. I started a couple months ago, so I'm in the middle of season five. Okay. And watching it when it, when the first time around it debuted in 1992, I only watched like the first two and a half seasons. I had this. Idea that I had watched the whole thing, but only I watched a very small part. So a lot of it is new to me now. Cool. um, Which is interesting. How much have you watched, either the first time around or this time around?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. I did not watch Beverly Hills Home when it was on. I obviously knew about it. I don't know. That wasn't my jam at that time. But I thought, oh, Melrose Place actually looks better.
2: 20-somethings. Yes.
1: I think I watched season one, but it just got a little soapier, and I somehow... I think I just got busy and it fell off my radar. So
2: so it's interesting you said it because something I love about the show is that you can see the sort of behind the scenes production very clearly. I'm not even talking physically. I'm talking about when they decided to shift the show, when a character was, you know, they're, they're teeing them up to leave the show. If actors didn't get along, they would unpair them and just pair them with someone else. So that's something that I really love about it. That's what I think makes it really soapy. And I kind of consider this like the second wave of nighttime soaps. Like the first was like your dynasty and your Dallas. And then this kind of, kind of died down, but this, they brought it back. And this is actually a spinoff of Beverly Hills, Nanatuno. And how, if you remember how they spun it off is in Nanatuno, when Kelly Taylor was a senior in high school, so 17, she started dating Jake, who was like, God, like 20 six at the time oh man he was a handyman and they were together and then he so jake played by the amazing grant show they were dating and then it turned out it didn't work out because they were from different worlds um also (laughs) it was illegal but they didn't really (laughs) and the first season it was it it sort of started to be like issues of hip 20-somethings living in los angeles and each episode would sort of have an arc but then, very clearly, that wasn't working, and they brought on uh, Heather Locklear, who we are so blessed for her, <laughs> and kind of this this turn into more serial plot lines, into more sort of the the soap opera trope. She wore like amazing pantsuit skirt suits that were really short. She was like a this like proto feminist advertising executive. Remember when that was like the cool job? Yeah, of the nineties. Like I work as an advertising executive. And it just sort of quickly went into farce almost. Here, I'll I'll set up some background for Carrie and others. <laughs> <Thank> so <you. laughs> Dr. Michael Mancini was married to Jane. They all lived in this apartment together. He cheated with Marsha Cross, who played Kimberly Shaw. You might know who Marsha Cross is. Mm-hmm. Also amazing. They had an affair. Finally they're together. Dr. Mancini got drunk and she was in the car and there was a bad accident. She went into coma and supposedly died. Okay, a couple episodes later, Kimberly's alive. She comes back and there's a very iconic moment. And then you've probably seen gifs of it where we think Kimberly's okay, but she goes into the bathroom and and turns out she's wearing a wig and she has a huge scar from brain surgery. And then from then, Kimberly not only tries to murder Michael, she tries to murder Sydney, another character, She literally plants homemade bombs in Melrose Place and blows up the complex. But Soon is forgiven, and she's back with Michael. And then right now there's a plot where she has a tumor and she's dying. Like, they forget very quickly about who's trying to murder who. (laughs) There is, unfortunately, a lot of rape plot lines. Probably all of the women on the show have been either raped or someone has attempted to rape them. And I'm smiling when I say this because it's so uncomfortable. I'm not laughing at it, but it's just that was the soap trope, right? Yeah. The funny thing is is that they all live in this complex. They live in L.A. and they have no other friends. They're (laughs) only allowed to hang out with the people in the apartment. They're constantly changing apartments. Like someone moves out and then someone moves into another apartment. Jake has been with every woman on the series, and I think has been engaged to like three of them. So it's it's frustrating, but kind of funny, and kind of like a wink at the camera at the same time when all of this happens. Oh wow, gosh, that is
1: wilder than I than I remember. Well, and you mentioned um, Heather Locklear as being kind of a turning point in the show, and yeah, and how kind of in certain ways aspirational she is. But are you? Su- is she portrayed as being a good person? Like, are we supposed to want to root for her or is she a little bit of like an anti-heroine?
2: At the beginning, she's an anti-heroine because she steals Billy from Allison, and Billy and Allison were like the, the like supposed to be like the perfect couple. They were platonic roommates. Billy answered an ad and Alison was like, Oh my God, a boy roommate. <laughs> that was like the big scandal. And then he started dating Amanda And she got pregnant but had a miscarriage. Oh, lots of miscarriages. Lots of pregnancies and miscarriages. Wow. Also, another thing is that many people have been framed for murder. (laughs) That's Like, they forget that they've already done. It's like the writers change. Like, at one point, Michael was paralyzed. And so he had to move back in with his ex-wife to be taken care of. Two seasons later, she gets paralyzed by her drink being spiked. And she has to live with him. And I'm like, Did they, do they remember that they've done this? Because the characters don't even mention. They should be like, hey, isn't it weird that we're in this situation again? So it's... Oh. Well, yeah. you mentioned that
1: there's 30-some episodes in each season. And I wonder, would this have been a better show if they had, like, either even just 22 episodes a season or, or 13? Like, they could have kept it a little tighter... And some of that boring stuff might have might have filtered out. Do you think that would have made it better? No,
2: I think you need it because it's just like the mundane is part of it in a oh. way. In the way that kind of soap operas, that's kind of the pleasure in them, right? It's more the, not necessarily the plot, but it's like the emotional connections. They do a lot of the emotional playouts, like something happens and they'll stay on the character, Oh, you know, with the emotions, it kind of things that... When soap operas were considered just low culture, kind of the things that it got criticized for. And then like sort of as we have come to appreciate them Mm -hmm. as part of like feminized culture, I think it's the emotional things that is kind of at the heart of the show. Like everybody's emotional. Everybody lies to each other all the time, which I don't know about YouTube, but like as I'm getting older, I hate I can't watch that. Like it just people being dishonest with each other, like and everybody's cheating. Like it actually makes me physically uncomfortable. So there's a lot of cheating on people, a lot of like, oh, I just saw you with this person and I think you're dating them. And if they only listened for two minutes, they would find out it wasn't the case. But there's a lot of like misinterpretations. So yes, please, (laughs) please interrupt.
0: So someone who has not seen this and is just going off of what you've told me, and if you don't like the things like, They're lying to each other. They're cheating on each other. All this stuff. What exactly (laughs) is the draw here?
2: (laughs) Well, the draw probably back then is that they're twenty somethings living in literally in like the Melrose neighborhood. So, like as a teen, that's aspirational, right? Like I don't know about you, but I was obsessed with like twenty somethings living on their own and kind of like the. That's why I like the real world as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As a viewer now, what? What's going to get me invested in 30 episodes?
2: (laughs) It goes down easy. Okay. You know the characters. A lot of storylines are really drawn out. Like the same things keep happening. Like, I don't trust you. Okay, I trust you. Now we're fighting again. It's almost like you know what's going to happen and you know the pattern. Mm -hmm. And just when you get sick of the pattern, the pattern gets broken and like somebody, you know, there's like a big sort of change. There's also... You know, like, Allison, who's played by Courtney Thornsmith, is supposed to be, like, the girl next door and kind of the the cypher character. She is just the worst. She's (laughs) whiny. She, But she just, like, everything happens to her and she complains. She's not good at her job. She, you know, she'll get a boyfriend and then be absent and then be like, Amanda, you're so mean to me when a man is like i just want you to do your job. So but then there's Sydney, which is Jane's younger sister played by Laura Leighton who is fantastic, and she gets into all sort of trouble like she she accidentally becomes a call girl. She gets <laughs> wait, wait, recruited wait, into wait. a cult. She but <laughs> how do you accidentally become a call girl? So this is another very 90s trope that i realized is that like she met this woman who's like, "Oh, you're down on your luck, you're gorgeous. I have a guy that i can set you up with." And she's like, okay. And then they go on the date and it's like an older gentleman and they have a wonderful time. And at the end, he gives her money and she's like, wait, what? And he says, well, I'm sorry. I thought you understood this, what it was. She'll be like, no, and run out. And then she'll go back to the madam and the madam will be like, what's the big deal? It's just dates. And she kind of of like, that's the way I've seen that happen. God, at least in like four Lifetime movies. (laughs)
1: And this was, on, this was on Fox, right? So it's it's not only – it's the 90s, so we're dealing with, with a different time, and we're also dealing with – even though Fox was even at that time kind of not as big of a network, but it was still network broadcast TV. So there's probably certain things that weren't going to ever be super groundbreaking. I remember yeah, I did a watch of all of Party of Five not too long ago, which was also a 90s yeah. Fox show, and they would – similar pattern where you'd get to like almost something edgy and then they would chicken out you know so they could show something but they had to show it having quote-unquote consequences so now are all the characters white yes
2: (laughs) there was a black woman character on the show in the first season Rhonda oh yeah played by Vanessa Williams and she was a cardio funk instructor oh And they just wrote her off the show. They wrote her off the show. They wrote um, this other character, Sandy, off the show. And I guess that was part of the reworking right when they brought Heather Locklear on. It's a real shame for many reasons. One is Rhonda and Matt were kind of like, they were best friends, of course, the gay guy and the woman of color, but they had a good dynamic going. And yeah, I guess there was not really much for her to go anywhere and they wanted to change it but after that there's like maybe a side character who's a person of color but no it's definitely a very white cast and white world they're living in that's really interesting that's yeah so you've got la
1: 20 somethings in the 90s with no people of color and only one gay person and it's a guy i
2: know living off melrose which is like supposed to oh and then the b-roll at the beginning of every show always Zeroes in on like eclectic looking people like punks or like a close up of Doc Martens. Like it's supposed to be like this bohemian, you know, world. And then they go to, I mean, the fashion is obviously amazing and awful because it's the 90s. Um, (laughs) And, you know, there's not a lot of like show business stuff. And you would think that for a show about people in Los Angeles, like at least some of them would be aspiring. You know, but, but none of them are. They're they're in advertising. They're a doctor, fashion designer, another very nineties job. Interesting, yeah. So yeah. it's a
1: lot less. Well, yeah. I mean, at the beginning of season one, it felt a little not realistic, but a little more like what you would expect that environment. Well, they to tried. Be like, yeah, they tried, and then they clearly and no one just, wanted to
2: see this. Yeah, yeah. They
1: just threw that out the window. So that's interesting.
2: Carrie, to answer your question from like ten years ago. <laughs> The reason I like it, and I didn't really understand this until now, is that when you have that insular feeling of, like, a serial soap opera, everybody's important at all times. Like, they Mm -hmm. have this small world where they, whatever drama they're going through, it is paramount within that group. Like, does that make sense? I mean, every you know, it's a small pool You know, in L.A., in a big city, you could just get lost. But, like, anytime somebody has drama, it's, like, at the forefront. If they bring on a guest character, that person, it's like their life was non-existent and they just sort of, like, appeared to be a certain thing in somebody's life. So, (laughs) it was very, like, almost, I don't know, like, aspirational. Like, of course, everybody wants to have, like, be, like, a big fish in their pond and have, like, everybody care what's going on and everybody kind of want to know what's going on yeah so i i think that's kind of what any sort of soap opera really appeals is that everybody is super important to everything and i guess that's kind of aspirational right like as a teenager i felt invisible and maybe i do now sometimes who knows you know and just having that feeling i think is what makes me love soap operas and i will say i mentioned it before but i think it's the same reason i like the dynasty reboot Mm -hmm. that's going on now which is actually really good and like not not nostalgically good, but like legit good. Cool. Yeah, I mean, we could probably
1: keep talking about this forever, but thank yeah. you so much. I, and where where is this streaming right now? I assume you're watching it streaming. Hulu. Hulu? Okay.
2: Again, I say this every time I feel like I've just I hope I've painted a picture of the show. Oh, you have. <laughs> I have learned a lot. <laughs> because I it's a lot to cover in five seasons. Oh, I also want to say the last season, Alyssa Milano was on it, but I've yet to see her come on. And Rena Sofer. Oh. And Jamie Lunar. So oh, all wow. like soap opera royalty. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. That must have been right before Charmed, actually,
2: for Melissa.
1: Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. And um, for our listeners, where can they find you on social media?
2: Oh, it's Robin H-H-H-H-H. It's Robin with five H's. I don't know why I did that. It just stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think of anything.
1: Thank you so
0: much. Cool. Thank you. So that was a lot of fun, and I learned a lot.
1: Thanks, Robin. <laughs> I feel like I feel like you thought we were entertaining, but that you're not going to be watching a lot of Melrose Place. Am I right? That's correct. <laughs> that, is, that is okay. That was really that was a lot of fun. Now we also talked to children's and YA author A.J. Culey about Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
0: We did. And again, I also learned a lot about a 90s show that I didn't really watch.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So hope you enjoy that. So we are here with author AJ Kewley, who is going to discuss with us one of her favorite 90s television series. So we'll let AJ kind of introduce herself and then we'll get to chatting.
3: All right. Hi, happy to be here. My name is AJ Kewley and I'm a children's and young adult author. And I'm a teacher, and yeah, that's me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And we can also talk a little bit about your own work toward the end here, but but yeah, you're mostly here though to talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
3: Yes, one of my favorite shows.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, did you start watching that when it when it premiered?
3: You know what? I honestly don't remember if I started watching it the first season kind of feel like I joined maybe during the second season I had a bit of reluctance because I wasn't and I know that this will just horrify some true fans but I wasn't exactly a huge fan of the the movie it was super campy and super over the top over the top is the right word yeah. and <laughs> and so you know so I was kind of like oh gosh do I really want to watch this this series but I just kept hearing all these things so I I don't, I don't really remember where I jumped in, but it wasn't too long after it had started. And uh, much to my own dismay, I was hooked <laughs> immediately.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know that any listeners of this wouldn't have a little bit of a familiarity with the show, but can you give us just like the most basic premise?
3: Sure. It's set. In, well, it begins set in a high school. Buffy is a vampire slayer, and um, she's been kicked out of her former school for burning down the gymnasium. And our family is relocated to Sunnydale, uh, which turns out to be um, on a Hellmouth. And so Buffy, along with the Scooby gang, kind of fight monsters through their high school years and eventually college. And yeah, so that's pretty much it in a nutshell. (laughs) A Hellmouth is a portal to hell where monsters? Pretty much, yes. But it's also like a like there are demons that walk the earth and they kind of are attracted to the hellmouth so and then there are demons trapped in hell and yeah so it's just kind of a whole thing <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's it's a drama but it's also very very funny there's a there's a strong comedic undertone so
3: funny yeah. yes so yeah.
1: funny <laughs> it's not really taking itself that seriously
3: no it really isn't and i think that's what makes it so awesome <laughs>
1: So you recently were trying to cram some of your favorite episodes in.
3: I was. I was.
1: Yeah. So what did you end up watching?
3: There are so many. I was saying that earlier, that there are just so many, it's really hard for me to choose. But, you know, at the top of the list is always once more of a feeling. Mm -hmm. But I've heard people say, you know, you can't really count that one. Because, like, that's the musical. And it's, like, everyone's favorite. So... Mm (laughs) So, you know, what's your next favorite, you know, so I would have to say that it's probably tie between the body and the gift. And but both of them are guaranteed to make me sob like a little girl, like hysterically. So Mm. I don't really watch it as often.
0: (laughs) Yes. As someone who has only watched
3: limited episodes of Buffy, what are those episodes about? In a way, they're both about grief. (laughs) and the journeys we take, you know, as humans and uh, like the body is the aftermath of the main characters, the death of her mom, and really like everyone's reactions. And it was so real. And so like, phenomenally well done that you just literally lived the experience of losing your mother through Buffy and losing the mother of a friend through all of her friends. And the like, complete uh, incomprehensibility of death through the reaction of Anya who is a demon who doesn't really understand the whole mortal thing and just can't understand, you know, why <laughs> humans die, you know, and so it just is really powerful and and if I need a good cry, that's my first go-to. If I need like something to release all those emotions of like the body, that's yeah.
1: it. <laughs> it's probably the series most totally dramatic episode. It's not funny. It's it's very raw. No.
3: It is. It's really upsetting. But it's beautifully done. Yes, I agree. I have to be in the right mood to watch it. So, I, you know, I've done many binges of Buffy where I've actually gone from episode one of season one through to the very final season through the years. But I often will skip the body if I'm not emotionally ready for that experience.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty intense episode. But, it's, but again, it's beautifully done. It's pretty... Okay. I think people should watch it, if, if they're watching the series, they should watch it once, you know, the first yes. time they watch through the series, but it's, it is tough.
3: It is, it definitely okay. is. And then The Gift, that was another one you mentioned, what was It was. So to me, um, The Gift is probably the best season finale I have ever seen in any show. And at the time, because I was watching it in real time as it was developing um, by that point, it was considered to be the series ender. And we did not know that, you know, Buffy would ultimately be picked up by UPN and that there would be two more seasons to come. And so it felt very final and and also superbly beautiful. I mean, it was just all about sacrifice and and love. And I don't know, it was just intense, also intense. (laughs) It's the it's the 100th episode of the series. And it's the
1: season ender of season five. And the show started on the WB in 1997. And then in 2001, the WB canceled it, but UPN picked it up. But yeah, you're right that fans, I don't think, knew that it was going to get renewed on a different network. So interesting. And so it's kind of like hard to spoil it because it's you could actually right, yeah. stop watching the series at the end of that if you wanted to. You could, yes. Okay. Not that you should. 'Cause there's still some no. stuff in seasons. <laughs> there's and some seven, amazing,
3: that. amazing, you know, episodes after that. So yes.
1: <laughs> so you did what you did watch those two, and then what else did you watch?
3: I also watched The Zeppo, which is like one of my favorite Xander movies ever. I don't know if you remember that one. Xander gets kinda caught up with some of his high school buddies. Not really high school buddies, actually. They're just one of them's kind of a psycho, is how they describe him. But they're jocks, I believe. And one of them is just a real kind of scary guy. And they are all dead. They're zombies. And while the rest of the Scooby gang and Buffy are off saving the world, Xander is busy, you know, with these zombies doing his own bit of saving of the world. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of almost a coming of age moment for Xander as he like, you can see him grow up in the episode and get a little more self-confidence. I love it.
1: Yeah, so we didn't really talk about Buffy's friend. So Buffy's played by Sarah Michelle Gellar, and the core of her little gang of friends that she calls the Scooby Gang are Xander, played by Nicholas Brendan, and Willow, played by Allison Hannigan. And they're the only constant members of her friend group that go through yes. season one to season seven. So he's like the the sidekick guy and sometimes comes off a little not as capable <laughs> as some of the other people. <laughs> he doesn't have any special yes. powers. Willow is a witch, but Xander is just a normal human. And so sometimes I think he feels like he's not as able to contribute. But that that that's a good episode because it shows that he absolutely is able to contribute and do things. So yeah.
3: Exactly. And he also has a pivotal role when like I said, I didn't make it to season six, but I love the season I believe it's the season ender, I don't know, of season six, and I can't pull all the title of the episode off the top of my head, but you know, he is critical. And pulling Willow back from the edge, yes. you know, in that season. Yeah, that episode is grave. And I can't remember if it's in two, okay. two to go
1: or grave when he stops her from accidentally ending the world. But yeah. Yeah. I love that you guys know the episode titles. Oh, <laughs> I have a list in front of me. I'm not oh. just pulling these uh, out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that makes me feel a little
0: bit better. I'm
1: not that good. I mean, actually, there probably was a point in time when I could have rattled off every episode. Oh, me too. (laughs) But not anymore.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, season five, though, or is it? No, season three, I think it is, is like one of my favorite seasons. Or maybe it's just that it has some of my favorite episodes that are not what I would call those really intense episodes. Like season five and season six have some of those really intense episodes. Mm -hmm. But But season three is just A lot of fun. There's just a lot of fun in season three. The Wish, Doppelgangland. I'm not even sure if I said that right. Doppelgangland? Doppelgangland? I don't know. (laughs) The Prom, you know, I mean, I love The Prom. I mean, as ridiculous as it was. That's an awesome episode. And I love the ending of it. Graduation Day. I mean, there's just so much to love in that. Now that's funny, because season
1: three is my least favorite. And my most favorite season is season five. But I still, I agree with you that there's some great episodes in season three. It's just not my yeah. favorite.
3: That's so funny.
1: Season five is my favorite season because it actually is the Wizard of Oz. The whole season is actually structured around the idea of the group as living through an, an allegorical version of the Wizard of Oz.
3: I had no idea. Like, you've blown my mind. <laughs> 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 what? somebody actually could watch season
1: five start to finish and see absolute parallels with the wizard of oz
3: so who's the wizard behind the curtain then explain
1: (laughs) so season five the story arc has to do with this this displaced god from like another dimension whose name is glory and she has a human sort of avatar who's a doctor named ben and they kind of represent a duality of either the wizard or Glinda and oh, the, wicked witch. the Wicked Witch. Yeah. Interesting. And that Buffy and Dawn represent Dorothy because they are both trying to go. Well, Glory in some ways represents Dorothy because she's trying to go home. And that Xander and Spike are kind of both a little bit of the Cowardly Lion. And Anya is kind of the Tin Man. And yeah, so there's little...
3: Interesting. And some of
1: the yeah. some of the episode titles are things like "Into the Woods," which is a little bit fairy tale esque yes. And there's a robot character who is kind of a couple of robot characters who are sort of another allegory of the Tin Man, and yeah, and that trying to go home is something, or getting home, or or finding the answer to to a long mystery has always been within Buffy's power throughout the whole season, but she didn't realize it.
3: Yeah. That's really interesting. I literally had never seen that or heard that before. Yeah, so there you go. but great. Thanks a lot. Now I'm gonna have to go rewatch all <laughs> of season five. With that in mind. <laughs> just more hours of viewing to come. <laughs> in the context of this you know, the the late nineties, early two thousands, like this show really had a lot of feminist themes through it. And I just I think it was one of the things that really appealed to me it was a strong female protagonist in Buffy and and then of course Willow. Also a very strong female who comes kind of into her own over the course of the series. Actually, they both do in many ways. And then we have, you know, Anya. I mean, there's just so many strong characters through it. But in particular, those strong female characters that really made me love the show a ton. And then the other thing I just absolutely loved about it was I just think the writing is so incredibly crisp and entertaining. And like I literally when I watched the show, I constantly find myself this is the beauty of having it on dvd as i hit the pause button and i will literally write down little quotes because the the dialogue is so incredibly fresh and entertaining and they use language in a way that that is just that just really highlights i think the power of language and how much we can do with words so that's why i keep
1: saying when people are reluctant to come to it because they think it sounds like a very dark concept but I, I swear that it's almost as much of a comedy in some episodes as it is a, yes. a fantasy quasi-drama. It, again, it doesn't take itself very seriously, but
3: it's no, comedic yeah. through
1: the dialogue. Like, it's almost kind of Noel Coward for teenagers. It's very, very witty.
3: It is. And I find myself chuckling and grinning and laughing through so much of it. And, uh, you know, and I mean... From Spike referring to humans as Happy Meals on legs, (laughs) you know, to to Xander's kind of witty repartee and his, I don't know, he's just like, they're all hilarious in one way or another. And I think that, that that's maybe part of the power, I guess, of it is that it makes you laugh even in really scary times. So one of my least favorite seasons is season four. I think it was going through Growing Pains, you know the kids are out of high school; they're not yeah. kids anymore, yeah. you know they're in their first year of college, and there's this whole like initiative storyline that I wasn't like super fond of and you know Riley, though utterly adorable and super hot, just reminded me of like a human version of Angel. It was like Buffy definitely has a type there yeah <laughs> you know so it just wasn't my favorite us. Uh, Season. However, there are some truly comedic moments even in that that uh, that season. Even in the worst of Buffy, I think, which you know, for everyone, the worst is is different. But like, I don't know which episode it was. I watched too many. But Riley has gone to the graveyard. He's taking patrol for Buffy because she's gotten hurt somehow, and she has gotten him to promise that he'll take the Scooby Gang with him. So it's Xander and Willow and Anya following him. And he's like all being like all super stealth mode military guy, and they're following with a bag of chips that they're crunching on with all their witty, you know, witty like conversation back and forth. And I'm just cracking up because it's hilarious. Yeah, dark, you know, uh, graveyard scene, and he's all serious, you know, going to stake the vampires, and they're just like talking and conversing. And what does that symbol mean? I don't know. You know, (laughs) they're just having fun in the background, and I'm laughing. I'm like, this is hilarious, you know. So. Like you said, it just doesn't take itself too seriously. So,
1: <laughs> well, cool. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us about this. Of course,
3: I love to talk about Buffy, man. It's like one of my favorite pastimes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so, maybe give our listeners just a little bit of some of your own writing and where they can find you on social media.
3: All right. Well, so I write under AJ Cuhly, and I have a middle grade series uh, called. Rabbisaurus Rex that is about a classroom rabbit who thinks he's a dinosaur. So it's kind of the target age is (laughs) ages eight to 10. I have some picture books for some of the younger kids set. And then I have a, I would say ages 12 and up, um, young adult series called Shifter High, that in many ways, I would have to say I would have to give credit to Joss Whedon for maybe having some influence on me as I've been writing the Shifter High series, just because, you know, I've tried to infuse it with humor, and it's set in a high school. And, They're not battling monsters, though, so. (laughs) But it it is a pretty funny series. So, yeah, and I I really um, took a lot of inspiration, I think, from some of the, the TV shows and some of the books that I have read through the years that really kind of meld humor with the paranormal, I guess.
1: Yeah.
3: I also have an epic fantasy series that's called Beneath the Willow, and that's pretty much, yeah, still writing, still, still, uh whatever oh my god okay. can I stop talking now <laughs> okay.
1: well and do you have a website or a main web presence
3: I do I was like I know there's something else she asked what okay <laughs> so I can be found on my website is uh, www.ajculey.com and it's spelled c-u-l-e-y and then I'm also on Facebook at ajculey on Twitter on Tumblr on Instagram at ajculey And then Taravisaurus also has his own Facebook page, at Taravisaurus, and his own Twitter, also at Taravisaurus, which I realize will probably be impossible for people to spell, but, you know. (laughs) Can they find that? Can they find that linked off your website?
1: Yes, they can. All
3: right, perfect.
1: Thank you so much.
3: Yeah, Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun.
1: That was so fun that the, we ended that conversation and then we still kept talking about Buffy for quite a while after that. So yes, yes, I was very lost. <laughs> <laughs> that segment actually could have been probably two hours long, but that was wonderful. <laughs> I had so much fun. Thank you so much to both Robin and AJ for talking to us. It's always a pleasure and uh, that was great. Next time we'll be talking about cults and
0: short-lived media. So we hope you enjoy that too. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Gessner. And you can find me on Twitter at KW Taylor Writer.
1: And we are both on Twitter at Paws Pop Podcast. If you want to email us, please do so at positivelypopculture at gmail.com. Thanks for
0: listening. Stay healthy and safe and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop.